Praise the Lord. Well, we're teaching on the name of Jesus, and we want to go back to some of the scriptures that we've been looking at in, in uh, the Gospel of John, starting in John chapter 14. Uh, these are, uh, this is John's account, eyewitness account of the last night that Jesus was with the disciples. And he gives us some information that uh, uh, some of the other gospel writers do not, particularly about that last night. And uh, you could well understand that Jesus' last night with his disciples would be the time that he wants to make sure that he gets the, the last bit, maybe even the most important bit of information to them before he goes to the cross. Uh, consequently, Jesus said some things to him, to them, about his name that, uh, that we don't have record of in any of the other Gospels, at least not in the same detail. We've, we've got some mention of it, I guess, but, but not in the same detail. Um, so let's, let's look at these scriptures. We'll start in John chapter 14 and uh, pick through about uh, four different um, places where Jesus talks about his name over the next couple of chapters. John chapter 14, verse 12, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, let me stop there for just a moment and, and, uh, and reiterate some things that we've said before. And, and really, we're, we're each of these, in my thinking, I, I don't know how it looks from the outside, but in my thinking, we're trying to build on things that we've done before and said before and things that we've looked at in the Scripture before. So here where it says that Jesus uh, identified the disciples, uh, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. What does he mean believing on him? He's already identified, and, and really the theme of these, uh, these chapters that we're looking through is that Jesus is telling them, because I'm going unto my Father, this is how things are going to be different. Well, what does it mean, because I go unto my Father? Isn't that another way of saying uh, that Jesus is identifying that I'm going to make a way of salvation for you? I mean, otherwise, what's the, what other purpose would there be for Jesus going to his Father? Literally, when Jesus is saying, because I'm going to my Father, this is the way things are going to be, he's talking about, because I'm making a way of salvation for you. So believing on him, therefore, would have to be talking about getting saved, accepting his sacrifice as your Savior, personally accepting him, as your Lord and Savior, becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus. So when Jesus says in verse 12, He that believeth on me, He's not talking about some special place in God. He's not talking about some special uh, faith or, or power that certain select individuals might have. He's certainly not talking about what the church has identified uh, or, or chosen to believe, that the apostles had some special power that we don't have today. Because He said, He that believeth on me, He's talking about salvation. He's saying this is going to belong to anybody and everybody that's in that new place of salvation, that new place with the Father, because I'm going to, to the Father now through the, the sacrifice of the cross. So he says again, verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Verse 13, And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, I'm sure you're tired of me saying this, but the word ask means call for, require, demand. It does not mean request. It does not mean petition. There is another word that's translated ask in the New Testament that does mean to request or to petition. This is not that word. This is him saying literally, whatever you call for, whatever you require, whatever you demand in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, notice the context. The context is believers, because I'm going to my Father, to make that way of salvation for you. Believers will have a special access to the name of Jesus. 
to call for things, to make requirement of things, to make a demand for things because I'm going to my Father. Now notice again, verse 13, Jesus said, Whatsoever you shall call for, require, or demand in my name, that will I do. Notice what God's attitude about this is. His, his position is pretty well defined. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask, verse 14, call for, require, demand anything in my name, I will do it. Now what does anything mean to you? I know we read these things casually and we say, yeah, Jesus said if we ask anything in his name, we'll do it. He'll do it. But what is he really saying? Now, folks, this is either true or it's not. There is no middle ground on this. This is not a matter of Jesus meant one thing, but John wrote down something else. This is either true or it's not. Jesus said, because of that special place that the believer has, if you call for, require, or demand anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we see the disciples doing some of these things in the book of Acts. And, and again, the early church said, wow, they've got something we don't have. Well, what did they have we don't have? Jesus didn't say it was special power. Jesus didn't say it was some special place with him. Jesus didn't say it was some special holiness. They didn't claim that either. The disciples didn't claim that either. What did they have? They had an understanding of the name of Jesus that the modern church doesn't seem to have. They had an understanding of what our rights and privileges are because Jesus has made a way of salvation for us that the, that the average Christian won't accept. The average Christian accepts salvation as being an escape from hell. Not too much good here. I mean, we're glad Jesus loves us and so forth, but, you know, most of it's going to be when we get to heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus said, He that believes on me, he that takes that place of salvation, he that is in Christ... The works that I do shall he do also. Where are we supposed to do them if not here? Well, when we get to heaven, we'll do the works of Jesus. On who? <laughs> there won't be any sick people there to heal. There won't be any poor people there. There certainly won't be any devil-possessed or oppressed people to deliver. When is he talking about if not now? Where is he talking about if not here? If you ask anything, call for, require, demand anything in my name, I will do it. Skip with me over to chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus is still talking. It's still in red. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now he's talking to condition now. Abiding in him is relationship, isn't it? What's he mean? He's talking about he that is in that special place of, of salvation that's going to occur because I'm going to my father. He's not talking about somebody that's got a special call on their life. He's talking about somebody that's accepted him as Lord and Savior. If you abide in me and, here's the second condition, my words abide in you. We might summarize this by saying if you maintain fellowship with God and maintain your relationship with God and walk by faith, then this is what you can have. This is what you get. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask, call for, require, demand. Same word not request is not petition call for require demand whatsoever you shall call for require demand what you will i know the church modern day church puts a lot of emphasis on whatever god wills jesus talked about what you wanted what you willed, not what god willed now don't get me wrong i'm not saying we can ask or, or call for things in the name of jesus contrary to god's will and expect to get results but if you're abiding in the word and the word's abiding in you you're not going to ask contrary to God's will because God's word is his will and that's what you're walking in. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall call for, require, demand what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Notice verse 8 is connected to that. Herein, in this way, herein is the Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Now notice the, the comparison between verse 8 of chapter 15 and verse 13 of chapter, uh, John chapter 14, verse 13. John 14, 13, whatsoever you shall call for, require, demand in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 15, 8, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. See, I think sometimes the devil wants to make us think that God really doesn't want to answer our prayers. God doesn't really want us to have the results that the Bible says we can have, but sometimes he's stuck. He meant this for, you know, people that were righteous and people that lived right, and, and, and of course, that's not you or me. But because God said so, he's kind of forced into doing some of these things. That's not what it's talking about, folks. It says this is what glorifies God. For you to use the name of Jesus, for you to have that special place of relationship with God through salvation. We call it a special place of relationship. Jesus called it a special place of relationship, or at least talked about it in those terms. But it's what we know of is just people being saved. I don't think we know what we have for the most part. Most people don't. And Jesus said, this is what glorifies the Father. For you to use the name of Jesus effectively. To get what you will. And if you're, as long as you're abiding in him and walking in the word, God's fine with whatever you will. Well, if you could get that truth home to people, that'd send them home skipping and jumping. You float home on a cloud if you understood that and accepted that and it became real to us. Verse 16. Here's another place Jesus uses his name. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you. Now, some people will stop there and say, yeah, they had a special place of ministry. That's not the chosen and ordained thing he's talking about. The chosen and ordained he's talking about is to bring forth fruit, the same fruit he's talking about in verses 7 and 8. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Notice he didn't say I've chosen you to, and chosen you and ordained you to be apostles. He said I've chosen and ordained you to bring forth fruit. Now is Jesus so stupid as to be talking about a different thing when he says fruit in verse 16 and uh, that he's talking about in verse 8 when he's talking about herein is the Father glorified that you bring more, forth much fruit. Why would he be talking about different fruit? Same setting, same topic. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you may go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain and whatsoever you shall ask. Notice it says, I, I misquoted it. It says that whatsoever you shall ask. In other words, he's saying, I know what you're going to need to bring forth fruit. I know the only thing that's going to cause lasting fruit to, to take place in your life so I want to remind you again and say what I said before, that whatsoever you shall call for or require or demand of the Father in my name, he will give it you. In other words, he's saying if you're going to bring forth fruit, you're going to need something really important, and that is to the name of Jesus to make demands on. Finally, chapter 16. Verse 23, Jesus said, And in that day you shall ask me nothing. This is the word ask that means to petition or request. So notice Jesus is saying in that day, talking about the day following his resurrection, the church age, the day that you and I are living in now. He's saying and in that day, you won't ask or request anything of me. One translation says it this way, and in that day you shall ask me no more questions. 
I think that's accurate. I'm not sure that's all inclusive, but it's accurate translation. Because what Jesus is saying is, once I go to the Father, you won't be talking to me about this stuff. But, verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask, this is the word called for, require, demand. Whatsoever shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have you asked, called for, required, or demanded, nothing in my name, ask, called for, required, demand, that you, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. Jesus seems to have a whole, lot, a whole different attitude about what God intends for us and the kind of life God intends for us to live here on the earth than the modern day church does. I don't know about you, but my joy is not full when my needs aren't met. My joy is not full when I'm dealing with sickness and disease. Ask that you may receive, call for required demand that you may receive, that your joy may be full. Notice verse 26. At that day you shall ask in my name, call for required demand. Now the day he's talking about is the church age, the day we're living in now, following his resurrection. At that day you shall call for required in my name, demand in my name, I say not to, unto you that I will pray. This is the word ask in verse 23 that means petition or request. He's saying, I'm not saying that I'll ask the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me. And I believe that I came out from God. Now what is he talking about? He's saying you've got the same place with God. You will have the same place with God after I go to the Father and make the way of salvation for you that I have with him now. So you won't have to come through me. Now we know that we always have to come through Jesus from the standpoint that the only way to be saved is through believing on his name. But he's saying once you're in, you don't have to come through me because God loves you just like he loves me. Now folks, I would submit to you that that's that special place of salvation. That's that special place of being in the name of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be in his name. To be in Christ is synonymous with the term baptized in his name. What does that mean? That means you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Once you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you come into Christ. You become part of those who are in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus. And that gives you this special place of fellowship with the Father. So that you have access uh, to the, his name because of your rights and privileges as a child of God. If there, um, I love the Word of God. One thing I like about the Word of God, it says in, uh, in Hebrews, it says the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder soul and spirit and joints and marrow. Uh, I like other translations on that. It says the Word of God is full of life and power. Literally, to me, that, that means this. If I compare other scriptures with, with uh, uh, that scripture in Hebrews 4, it means, that, it means specifically that the Word of God is designed to change your understanding to God's truth. That's what God's Word is designed for. That's why it's so important to read and study the Word. Because it's designed to change your understanding to God's truth. I understand more about the name of Jesus than I did when I started this series. And I see some things differently than I did when I started I'm, I'll have to plead guilty. I'm just like most other Christians, most everybody else that I've ever heard of or read, read after. And that is, most of us look at the name of Jesus as an event. We look at the use of the name of Jesus as a singular event. 
We see things like Acts chapter 3 where Peter and John are at the beautiful gate of the temple and they use the name of Jesus to get the guy healed. And we think, wow, there are times, there are specific instances where the name of Jesus will be just like what Jesus said. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Thank God that's true, that there are times where the Holy Ghost will prompt us to use the name of Jesus to do the same works Jesus did. But Jesus is not talking about the use of his name or the access to his name as singular events or specific events. He's talking about position. The name of Jesus, being in Christ, is a position. It's not a singular event. And I think what we've done is we've sat back and we've said, well, there are people that God uses like that, you know. But I'm not one of them. And so we lose understanding and effectiveness when it comes to the way God has designed and Jesus reveals to us about how his name is supposed to operate. Being in, in the name of Jesus or having access to the name of Jesus is a position. It's not a singular event. You're supposed to, the Bible says that everything that we do, we should do in the name of Jesus. Whatsoever thou doest, do all in the name of Jesus. How is that possible if being in Jesus, being in the name of Jesus is not a position? I don't write checks in the name of Jesus. I don't take out the trash in the name of Jesus. I don't take care of the mundane and, and, and ordinary events of my life in the name of Jesus if, I'm, if it's literally about the use, singular event use of his name. But if it's position, then I'm in the name of Jesus no matter what. If it's position, then I have access to all the power of God at any moment of time when I have, when I have need for it. If it's position. Now, this seems to be the very thing that, that the disciples are trying to tell us about. I, I hope you know the story well enough to where we don't have to take time to turn over there. But in Acts chapter 3, after the, Peter and John used the name of Jesus to heal the guy, the, the crippled man at the beautiful gate of the temple, everybody comes running together, and their first response is, what are you looking on us like we've got something special? In other words, they're not saying, they're not, they're not identifying, wow. Now, guys, this is new for us too, but this is just like Jesus said. There will be singular events where the name of Jesus will produce signs and wonders and miracles. But that's not what they said. They said, why look ye on us as if by our own holiness or our own power we've done this? Now, folks, that's exactly what the modern-day church says. The modern-day church says they had a special place with God or a special place of holiness, or they had special power, and once the apostles died, that place of power was done away with. That's what they said it wasn't. Well, who's going to know if it's not them? What did they say? They just simply said it was the name of Jesus through faith in his name. Now, we think, we read, we have the, the tendency at least to read, through faith in his name, that means they had some big-time faith that we can't have. Or they were saying, we're in Christ. Don't you understand that we're in Christ and therefore have believed on his name and therefore we have access to do the same works that Jesus did when he was here on the earth? I would submit to you that that is what they're saying because they go farther and say, neither is there any other name under heaven where men may be saved. What are they talking about salvation for? Because they understand that the name of Jesus is theirs because they're saved. Not because they're apostles. Not because there was some special something that, that, uh, that came on them that nobody else can have. 
They're saying we're in Christ. We made Jesus the Lord of our lives. This is the way that it works for those who are in Christ. Now, folks, I would submit to you, if, if just for the sake of discussion, if you don't accept that position, and, and a lot of people, maybe most people won't, if you don't accept that position, you have to conclude at least this. From the scriptures that we just looked at in, the, in the, these uh, three chapters of John, John 14, 15, and 16, from the verses that we saw, Jesus is clearly, clearly identifying that there is a, uh, a special place of authority in his name that they didn't have before. He is saying, because I'm going to the Father, because I'm making a way of salvation for you, access for you to the Father, there is a special place of authority in and through his name that they didn't have before. Otherwise, why is he talking to them about it? Otherwise, why didn't he say, you know, guys, um, I'm going to be gone for a little bit, but I'll come back, and it'll be just like it was before. Because he's already delivered authority to them to cast out devils and to heal all manner of sickness and disease. I would submit to you that that was not in his name. He just delegated the authority to them. He said, up till now, you've called for or required nothing in my name. So whatever they did here on the earth, they didn't do in his name. Now, I don't want to take time to get into that. Uh, I hope I haven't opened the can of worms lid too, hot, too far already. But it's certainly something different than what he's talking about now. So he's got to be talking, at the very least, he's got to be talking about extra or additional or a new place of authority in his name that they didn't have before. Right? That sounds a lot to me like when he starts saying, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, if you'll ask anything, call for a required demand, anything in my name, that's what I'll do. This special place of authority sounds a lot like what Jesus said about the operation of faith. All things are possible to him that believes. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, be thou removed and be cast into the sea, and nothing would be impossible unto you. It sounds like unlimited potential. I don't want to say unlimited ability, even though it is, but unlimited ability, most people can sign to God, and, and once you start to, talking about that, then they just check out on you. So let's just say it this way. It's clear that he's talking about unlimited potential. Unlimited potential. Now, my question is simply this. Is he talking about something different when he talks about the use of faith to do the impossible than when he's talking about the use of his name, or is he talking about the same thing in different ways? Well, I'll refer you back to John 14, 12 again. He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. All right, well, if we accept the fact that there is a special place of authority in his name, a new place of authority that they didn't have before, how is that authority going to be exercised? We looked last week, I believe it was last week, went back to the book of Genesis, how the Bible talks about when God created the earth. How he said, ten times it's mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, and God said, and God said. Why does the Bible tell us that over and over and over again if it's not showing us God's use, the means of God's exercise of authority over the earth? And man was made in his image, an exact duplication in kind, the Hebrew says. Exact duplication in kind. Okay, so if God's exercising authority over the earth to create it as we see it and, and understand it in Genesis... 
and he exercises that authority through words, if man's an exact duplication of his kind, God's kind, intended to operate the same way on the earth that God intended, God gives man dominion over the earth and over all the works of his hands, how then should we assume or understand that God intended for man to exercise authority here while he was on the earth too? If not through his words. And isn't the words that you speak the key element of faith? So I'll ask again, is he talking about two different things? When he talks about the use of his name and he talks about the operation of faith, they both produce the miraculous. They both have unlimited potential. Is he talking about two different things or is he talking about the same thing in two different ways? Folks, I would submit to you that he's talking about the same thing. Therefore, we could take each one of these scriptures that we've looked at, starting in John chapter 14. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. I'm sorry, that's verse 11. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall speak in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall speak anything in my name, I will do it. John 15:7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall speak what you will. And it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Verse 16. If you, if you have not chosen me but I have chosen you. And ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. And that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever you shall speak to the Father in my name. He will give it to you. John 16.23 And in that day you shall ask request of me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall speak to the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have you spoken nothing in my name. Speak, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. Jesus is talking about the use of your words. He's talking about the power of God, unlimited power, unlimited potential, released through the use of your words. Through the use of your words. Through the use of your words. Now this may be the point where some of you leave the, church, leave the service today and start saying, well, Pastor Mike finally went over the edge. Wondering how long it's going to take him to get there. But folks, we have to conclude certain things. I mean, if the Bible is either true or it's not true. There's no middle ground as far as I'm concerned. It's not, it's not written by men who meant well and, and blah, blah, blah. It's either true or it's not. We have to conclude, if we accept the Bible as true, we have to conclude that when Jesus was here on the earth to do the will of the Father, he said everything he did, he did because of the will of the Father. He didn't do what he wanted to do, not that his will was different, but he's saying, what you see me do is because God has directed me to do it. Everything that he did was at the Father's will or an expression of the Father's will when he did it. And we have to conclude that when Jesus was here on the earth to serve mankind, the earth served him. We have to conclude that. When he needed to walk on the water, he did. When he needed to multiply loaves and fishes, he did. When he needed to exercise authority over the devil, to heal sickness and disease, he did. Jesus exercised authority over the earth to find hidden treasure to pay his taxes. Jesus exercised authority over the physical laws of even of life and death to raise the dead. Right? Now, he's not the only one that did this stuff. 
I mean, if we just stopped there and said, yeah, but that was Jesus, Jesus was the Son of God, then, okay, we might have a, we might have a reason or a legitimate cause to say that, that we can't expect that kind of work to be done by anybody other than him. But after Jesus goes to the Father, at the beginning the, in the beginning of the church age, we've got examples where people did the same stuff. We've got examples where the disciples exercised authority over sickness and disease and healed the sick just like Jesus did. And in some places, some instances, did works that we don't even have record that Jesus did. In Acts chapter 4, it talks about how people were healed by Peter's shadow passing over them. We don't have any record that people were healed by Jesus' shadow. Is that a greater work than what Jesus, like Jesus was talking about in John 14, 12? Might be. I don't think you can get any greater in quality than what Jesus did, but it's a different method. And so maybe that's part of what he's talking about. I don't know. We've got an instance in Acts chapter 5 where Peter is used by the Holy Ghost. I don't want to say that Peter had this power. I, I can't find any, any uh, scriptural evidence that you can have this power in, in and of yourself. And when I refer you to the instance you'll understand why that's a good thing on God's part that we don't but there was one instance where Peter talking to Ananias and Sapphira revealed the lies that they were telling to the church apparently trying to gain a place of prominence in the church and their lives were ended on the spot now again I'm not saying Peter had anything to do with that but that certainly is a great work it says that everybody wondered and everybody was amazed at it. What it doesn't say, that if, it, if something like that happened in the modern day church, I don't know if it was like that in their day, I don't think it was, but don't have any way to know for sure. If that happened today, that would empty churches out. I mean, if that was a normal course of operation, churches would have to be built next to funeral homes. But the laws of life and death were suspended by the supernatural operation of the church. <coughs> Philip was translated. Philip disappeared in one location and appeared in another location. That's pretty nifty. In one place, in Acts chapter 13, it talks about Paul encountering Elamus, the sorcerer who was trying to to um, uh, influence the magistrate against the preaching of Jesus, Paul commanded there to be a mist of darkness to fall about him that he would not see the sun for a season. I don't see Jesus doing that. I don't see any place in Jesus' earthly ministry where that happened. Clearly it was the hand of God at work because it wouldn't have worked when he said it, would, uh, said it to be. And he didn't even say in the name of Jesus. He didn't even use a singular event, work of the name of Jesus to do it. We see people exercising authority even over the laws of nature in the early days of the church. Just like Jesus did when he was here on the earth. It's almost like this being in Christ stuff is really important. It's almost like it's really, it really means something. And using the name of Jesus, living in the name of Jesus, carrying out the will of God the Father in your life here on the earth really works. Isn't it? I think the things that we say, we look at and we think are impossible, I think that God just says, yeah, that's me. 
I don't see Jesus walking on the water when he finally gets to the boat and he's, uh, and he's in, the, in the boat and sits down. I don't see him wiping his sweat from his brow saying, man, that was the toughest thing I ever did. I don't see Jesus doing the movie, the Hollywood movie type stuff when he calms the sea, you know, trying to work up some kind of power and then light shooting out of his hands or something like that. He just said, peace be still. Now, we've seen people on occasion, on occasion, step over into some of these things, and the church and the world looks at them and says, wow, they must really be something. When, in fact, they just tapped into the God who really is something. But no, no time in history have we found anybody that's lived there other than Jesus. But I think we're coming to a place where people will. The more I see the world going absolutely crazy and people accepting insanity as, as truth, calling the truth a lie and the lie of the truth, the more I see the need for the power of God and only the power of God to turn some things around. I saw the other day where somebody was talking about, I, don't, I didn't read it myself, but somebody was talking about a, a prophecy from someone that after this last election they prophesied that God was saying I'm giving you your country back well thank you Lord let's see so the Republicans are a gift <laughs> I'm not convinced of that don't get me wrong I think they could do good things but you don't have to be a Republican to be able to do good things I don't think anything but the power in the name of Jesus is going to change things around I think there are some things about what we knew of a country that we grew up in that are gone forever. So we better understand that we're of a country that's not here of the earth. We're of a, a heavenly home, not an earthly home. I don't know if you know this or not, folks, but the further and further we go toward the end, you need to look at yourself as a missionary. You're a missionary from heaven to earth. Okay, so if we see that we've got a special place of authority in the name of Jesus, and that means position, and we proved that earlier through some of the, the previous messages, if that name of Jesus means position rather than a singular event, then he's saying that we have access to power that for the most part is untapped, not tapped into. But it's available to us. Well, what is it that's going to make the difference there? Let's uh, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. We, um, we looked last week at Genesis chapter 1 where God created the earth. And we saw how he did it with words. Hebrews 11.3 tells us we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And everything that, we, that God made that is seen was made from unseen words. And it's identifying that as faith in the operation of faith. Um, the book of Genesis... I'd like to do a study on the book of Genesis sometime, just kind of go through verse by verse, but it would take forever. I need the millennium to do it. So let me, let me run through just some summary real quick. I'll try not to take just a minute or two to, to provide some context. We know that God creates Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve fall in the garden. We don't know how long between the time that he created them and, uh, and the fall. We don't know how many years that was. 
Um, I, on, on one hand, I can see that it, it would make sense for the devil to attack early on before they gained experience. But whether that's the case or not, we don't know. We do know that um, some years later, Noah comes along. God decides because of the wickedness that, that uh, is upon the earth that he's going to destroy the earth with a flood. Now, we know from the time that God cr created Adam to the time of the flood was 1,656 years. I don't know how many of those 1,656 years Satan was in total control because Adam, you know, was in the garden for some period of time. But if we assume that it was from the beginning, the literal beginning, it only took 1,656 years for Satan to overrun the earth without anything to hold him back for Satan to overrun the earth and create such a wickedness, an environment of wickedness, that God said, I've got to get rid of this. So he does. But he can't do that without first making um, a covenant with Noah unless he's going to wipe mankind out altogether once and for all. So he has to have man's authority to do what he wants to do and save man, spare man in the process. Now don't get me wrong, God could have destroyed the earth and destroyed all of mankind. He didn't have to spare Noah or anybody else. But the reason that he did spare Noah was because he had a plan to redeem mankind. The Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the earth. That means he was slain before Adam and Eve were ever made. That means he was slain before, in, in the mind of God at least, I don't mean literally, but in the mind of God, Jesus had already offered himself up to be the sacrifice for mankind before mankind was ever created. Well, that plan of redemption was already accomplished as far as God was concerned, as far as Jesus was concerned. So God has to save mankind. So in order to save mankind, God has to start over, so to speak, with a man that he makes a covenant with. Now God made a relationship with Adam, and that didn't hold because Adam disobeyed. So he knows that a relationship is not going to hold if it's dependent solely on man. So God creates a covenant, and a covenant is where God says, I will agree to do certain things. There were some covenants that God, God demanded uh, uh, obedience or something from the other side. There were other covenants where he didn't. He just said, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm going to do this. So he makes a covenant with Noah. He spares Noah. He spares Noah's family. And, um, uh, and the, the covenant that he makes with Noah the biggest part of the covenant he makes with Noah, besides sparing him, sparing his life and the life of his children, is that he says, I won't destroy the earth again with water. He didn't say, I won't destroy the earth. He says, I won't destroy it with water. And so he gives him a rainbow. Now, fast forward some years. Now God creates a, another covenant with mankind. But this covenant is something that God intends to be the means whereby he brings about the redemption of mankind. Noah's covenant was just one that he said, I'm going to spare man to have somebody to redeem. That's an oversimplification, but you get the point. Abraham's covenant was different. Chapter 15 of Genesis tells us about the covenant that God makes with, Noah, or with uh, Abraham. Excuse me. After these things, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I love this in another translation. The literal translation says, I am your shield and your vehemently increasing payment. Now, if you back up a little bit, you'll find out that God's already appeared to Abraham, and, or Abram, hadn't changed his name yet. He appears to Abram, and he said, follow me to the land where I tell you to go, and I'll bless you. That blessing turned out to be God making Abraham very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Now, folks, I want you to understand some things. God's covenant with Abraham was not a spiritual covenant. 
God talked to Abraham about what he would do for him naturally. Now that makes sense because Abraham was not a spiritual man. Abraham's an idol worshiper just like everybody else is. Nobody worships God. Nobody knows God. So when God appears to Abram and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, or, or literally, first of all, he doesn't even make the covenant. He just kind of makes a, a, a binding agreement on his part, but he doesn't ratify the covenant yet. So he says, obey me, go where I tell you to go, and I'll bless you. And Abraham does, and the blessings are physical blessings. God makes him very rich in silver and cattle and gold. There is no place in heaven talked about. As a matter of fact, if you go to Judaism now, there's very little heaven in Judaism. Judaism does not look for a, a Messiah to create a heavenly place or a heavenly home for them. They look for a Messiah to restore the kingdom to them here on the earth so that they're back in charge. That's what Judaism is all about. Because that's what the blessing of Abraham is all about. That's what the Abrahamic covenant is all about. It's about what God will do for you here. Not what he's going to do for you in heaven. So God makes a covenant with Abraham. And this is where God speaks to him about uh, having a child. Um, verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. He's talking about Ishmael. But he shall, that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if you're able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Verse 6 is the key verse for everything about Abraham. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it unto him for righteousness. Abraham chose to believe. He chose to believe. Now he has a little bit of experience with God. We don't know how many years it's been from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15. But he's already seen God bring natural, physical, financial prosperity and blessing to his life. So he knows God's a God of his word. So now he believes what God says to him about his children. That was part of the original promise too, but whatever period of time has taken place, he hasn't received the child yet. And verse 7 it says, And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the earth of the Chaldees to give unto thee this land to inherit it. Physical blessing. Material reward. And he said, here's what Abraham says, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Now that's when God causes the covenant to be made. He causes Abraham to bring forth a, a sacrifice, split the sacrifice in half, set things aside, and then Abraham falls into a deep sleep. Now, can I ask you a question? A covenant is, all, is known throughout history, not just Bible history, but throughout world history. A covenant is known where two parties are participating. What good does it do if Abraham's asleep? Why would God put Abraham to sleep? Well, truly, I, I, this does not mean literal sleep. But God sets Abraham aside. I think he was overcome with the power of God personally, but that's just me. He sets Abraham aside so that Abraham can't get involved and mess it up. Now, when you make a covenant, when two parties make a covenant, sometimes the principals themselves make a covenant, and other times they have a representative to stand in for them. But it means the same thing. So literally, and I'll prove it to you from Galatians chapter 3, literally, God makes the covenant with Abraham, but it's not with Abraham himself, it's Abraham's representative. Who was that? Jesus. The two parties in this covenant that takes place in chapter 15 is God on one hand and Jesus on the other. Verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down, there was a dark, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp. Smoking furnace literally means a vaporous glistening. It's talking about the cloud of God, the cloud of glory. 
there was a vaporous glistening and a burning lamp. Another translation of burning lamp is a flaming torch. So you've got the glory of God represented by the cloud. You've got Jesus represented by the flaming torch that passed between the pieces. Now the reason that that's significant is because when you make a covenant, God's uh, directions as far as covenants and not just covenants with God, but covenants that men made with one another. There are always the same elements involved. There's a sacrifice. You split the sacrifice in half. There's blood in the middle. And both parties pass through the sacrifice. Literally, you walk down through the path where you're walking in the blood of the sacrifice. Both parties have to do it. One walks to the one end and come back. The other walks to the one end, comes back. Where both of them are signifying we're both entering into the same covenant with the same responsibilities to one another. The smoking furnace or the vaporous glistening, the cloud of glory, and the burning torch both pass through the same sacrificial ritual practice. It's God and Jesus. And the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Notice verse 18. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now up until this point God hadn't talked to Abraham about covenants. He's talked to him about blessings. He's talked to him about obedience. If you'll go where I tell you to go, I'll bless you, and so forth. This is the first mention of Abraham, of covenant with Abraham. And it happens when the smoking furnace and the burning torch, the flaming torch, walk through the pieces, fulfilling the ritual practice. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. Notice what the covenant is about. It's about the inheritance of land. This is the land, by the way, that everybody's fighting over today. Unto thy seed I have given this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and, and names the boundaries of it down to the end of verse 21. In other words, God's making a covenant for Abraham to have physical territory. He's promised him, promised him that his seed would be like the stars of the sky. But he makes a covenant with him about the land. Now fast forward with me to chapter 17. We'll start in verse 1. When Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. What covenant is he talking about? He's talking about the same promise he made to him in chapter 15 about your, your seed being like the stars of the sky. Now he says... And identifies that those are covenant terms too. But what is natural descendants? Is it a spiritual promise or is it a natural promise? Is it a spiritual reward or a natural reward? He's talking about physical descendants. It's still a, a physical covenant, physical benefits, not spiritual ones. Um, he changes his name. Well, let's keep reading. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and talk, God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Please notice that first phrase, as for me. That's God saying, here's what I'll do. We haven't seen anything where God says, here's what I need you to do. As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Verse 5, neither shall thy name be any more called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. I like how one minister said it. God took a part of his name and gave it to Abraham. Now, Abram's name is Abram with God, literally. 
Neither is thy name any more called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For I have, uh, for a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations come of thee, and nations shall come out of thee, or kings will come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Is there any mention of heaven? Is there any mention of spiritual benefits? He's still talking about stuff here on the earth. I'll be a God unto you. He's not saying, and I'll make a place for you when you die. And you'll live with me forever throughout eternity. Is he? Not yet. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And folks, this is why there's so much uh, fighting and, and turmoil and conflict about the Middle East. The devil's trying to steal Abraham's covenant right. And God's already said, no, it's not Ishmael. See, the, the, uh, uh, many will say, well, Ishmael is the seed of Abraham too. That's what Abraham said over in chapter 15. He said, Lord, bless Ishmael. He said, well, I will, but that's not the one that's going to have the covenant. Covenant promises. It's the Jews. It belongs to the Jews. Now, I don't care what your politics are. God said it belongs to the Jews. It's okay with me. You can fight against God if you want to. Don't scan off my notes. Verse 10, or verse 9. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant. Therefore thou and thy seed after thee and their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me, and, between me and you and your seed after you, every man child among you shall be circumcised. Here's where God says, now here's what you need to do. As for me, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you and your seed after you for the land and all the physical benefits, physical blessings that we've talked about. Now here's what I need you to do. I need you to circumcise your son and all your children after you. Skip with me over to chapter well, before we leave there, chapter 17, um, why, don't we, why don't we give you the reference for the thing that I just mentioned, verse 18. And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. Not Ishmael. Not the Arabs. Ishmael is the father of the Arabs. Isaac is the father of the Jews. So the covenant that God makes if the Bible's true, of course I accept that as a given, is that the covenant is with Abraham through Isaac, not through Ishmael. As for Ishmael, verse 20, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget and I will make of him a great nation. I'm not sure that turned out to be such a benefit. But that's what he says. Verse 21, but my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Isaac shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. Now fast forward, we know that Isaac was born, supernatural birth. Skip with me over to chapter 22. Some years pass now, and something happens in, I, in Abraham's life, uh, Isaac's too, but something happens that changes everything. Everything. Chapter 22, verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. The word tempt means to test or to challenge. Now notice, the, uh, remember that the Bible says 
in James. James is the one talking to the church, and he said, don't let anybody say when he's tempted of evil that God, or when he's tempted or tested, that God tempts, tempted him. Because God cannot tempt man with evil. It does not say God doesn't test man. It says God doesn't use evil to do it. See, everything about the Bible, obedience to the Bible is a test. The Bible says bring all the tithes into the storehouse. That's a test. To test you, you're going to pass or you're going to fail. Now, you can make all kinds of reasons and excuses and justifications or whatever you want to, but it's a test. God says, put me before your money. Well, okay, Lord, why don't we just say we put you instead of our money, in front of our money. We love you more than our paycheck. God says, if you love me more than your paycheck, give me 10% of it. Well, Lord, I don't want to do that. I just want to love you. That's where a lot of people are. Lord, I can't afford to do that. Folks, if you can't afford to tithe now, you'll never be able to afford to tithe. Because it's not going to get better. Some people seem to have the idea that, well, when I, one of these days, I'll hit the lottery or whatever the case is, hit the jackpot in some way or another, and then I'll tithe. If you don't tithe now, you're not going to tithe then. And make no mistake about it, God understands that it hurts. That's why it's a test. The test is, are you going to yield to your flesh, or are you going to do what God said to do? I had to get rid of a car so I could pay my tithes. Don't tell me it's, you know, it can't be done. I know it can. I couldn't keep the car and pay my tithes at the same time because I wouldn't have had the money to pay for the car, and I, I was obligated to pay the car. I had a contractual obligation. God does never, never will tell you to not meet your obligations to obey the word. So for me, it became real simple. I can either tithe or I can make a car payment. Well, I can't do both. I choose to tithe, so I'm going to get rid of the car. And that's what I did. And God blessed me. But make no mistake about it, God tests us all the time. That's not a grievous thing, because it's to your benefit to, uh, to obey what the Bible says. You may not know that up front, but that's what you find out. So that it becomes a joyful thing. It becomes something where you want to obey the word because you see that it's for your benefit. It's not to your detriment. But make no mistake about it. Everything about the Bible is a test. Are you out there? Okay, and it came to pass that after these things that God did tempt or test Abraham. And he said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, I'm here. And he said, Take now thine son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went into the place, uh, went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. The Septuagint says it this way, And having worshipped, we will return to you. Now, folks, I want you to get something. I want you to understand God's, uh, Abraham's mindset in this. He says, After we go worship, we'll come back. Now, Abraham knows what he's going for. He's going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice on the altar. But he has every intention of Isaac returning. Please keep that in mind. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and lays it upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And they both went, up the, uh, went both of them together. 
And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Please notice verse 8. Verse 8 is prophetic. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Now there's two ways you can look at that. You can look at it by Abraham saying God will provide uh, the burnt offering that he wants. Or you can look at it like God will provide himself as the burnt offering for mankind, which was Jesus. He's speaking prophetically of Jesus. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, folks, please understand that God um, gave Abraham his son Isaac when Abraham was 100 years old. At this point, Isaac is a young man, probably mid-teens, something like that, so you can't tell me that he couldn't have overpowered his dad if he wanted to. Isaac is complicit in this. Now, what the Bible doesn't tell us is the rest of the conversation. It tells us one thing that Isaac said, where's the lamb that we're going to offer? We've got everything else for the sacrifice. Where's the lamb? And Abraham answers him and says, God will provide himself a sacrifice. But what's the rest of the conversation? What conversation is there that takes place before Isaac has his hands tied and laid on the altar? There had to be something. I mean, you can't tell me that he's not going to say, uh, excuse me, Dad, this is not part of the sacrifice ritual. We seem to be deviate, deviating from the normal plan here. What's up? I have no doubt in my mind, you judge for yourself, but I have no doubt in my mind that by the time Isaac is laid on the altar, Abraham has told him everything that God has said. Maybe even the part about, now wait a minute, Isaac, you're the one that he said that he would multiply our seed as the stars of the sky. You can't die here. Or if you die, you can't stay dead. You're the one. He didn't say, I'll give you another son to replace Isaac. He said, Isaac is the one that I'll establish my covenant with so that your seed is like the stars of the sky. More than you can count. There's got to be some kind of conversation here that the Bible doesn't tell us about. Because Isaac lays down willingly. This is one of the hardest stories in the Bible for me. I'd have no problem whatsoever laying on the altar myself. Putting my son on the altar is a different matter. And God knows that exactly. Verse 10, And Isaac stretched for, uh, Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He's ready to go through this if it's necessary. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. We sing songs about the, the Jehovah-Jireh, my God shall supply all my needs. Jehovah-Jireh is a place. Jehovah-Jireh is a place. Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord, the God that's more than enough, El Shaddai, the God that's more than enough, is a part of the place, the special place of salvation that Jesus made for you when he went to the Father. And it comes as a result of obedience to God's word. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said that to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Now, let me... Uh, 
let me relate somebody else's story. This is not mine. But somebody else used this example. I thought it was a real good one. And he said this. He said, you know, if, uh, if there are going to be uh, civil contracts let, and, and many times, you know, uh, road contracts are let out for millions of dollars or, or building contracts are let out for millions of dollars, and, uh, and, and they have this special process where they have a certain amount of, of time for bidders to, to pro provide their bids and, and all this kind of stuff. One of the, 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 uh, the pieces of the bidding process is that the person making the bid has to prove that they can perform the job according to what they're saying they can do. For example, it'd be easy if, the, if there's a bid that's expected to be $10 million and some bum off the street comes in and says, well, I'll do it for $2 million, with the hopes of getting the $2 million and running away. But that won't work because you have to produce and provide documentation. Many times it's a bond to where bidders have to provide uh, a bonding company, an independent bonding company that has access to their books and their financial well-being and, and status and so forth to where they verify this individual can indeed perform according to the contract that they're proposing for X amount of dollars. That's a means of proving that you can hold up your end of the contract should you be awarded the contract. This is what Abraham is doing for the first time ever. Now, folks, we've looked at everything that God has said about his covenant, and there's never been one word said about anything other than a physical, material blessing. There's been blessings where his family is concerned, blessings where prosperity is concerned, blessings where land is concerned. But there's not been one word said about spiritual blessings as a part of the covenant until Abraham obeys what God tells him to do with Isaac. And again, let me read from verse 12. The angel said, Don't, touch your, don't lay your hand upon the child, Neither do thou anything unto him for now. Now I know. Now I know. How could he have known otherwise? Now, folks, if Abraham had been able to just say, Oh, yeah, I'd be willing to do anything, Lord, even offer my son Isaac on the altar. If that was all there was to it and he hadn't had to follow through on it, then the devil could have challenged the validity of the covenant that God makes with Abraham that winds up, we know, winds up being Jesus and blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. It has to be proven. Abraham has to prove that he's worthy of having a covenant with the Almighty God, the creator of the universe. And that's exactly what he does. Folks, we don't see this. We read the story and we think about it from the natural standpoint. From heaven's standpoint, heaven held its breath while Abraham lifted that knife. Because God knew all along what he intended to do for mankind, the plan of redemption that Jesus has already agreed to, already offered himself up as the sacrifice. Hadn't followed through with it yet. And this is the key element so that Jesus follows through. Because if Abraham is not willing to offer his son, God is not obligated to offer his either. Can you see that? Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself I have sworn saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And, the seed sh and, and thy seed shall possess the gate of thine enemies, of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They rose up and went together into Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now, folks, we read through that real quickly, but I want to submit something to you. There is a new term to the covenant 
now. Did you see it? The last phrase in verse 17. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, without going any further, let me remind you of something, and that is over in Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about the heroes of faith. Beginning verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now that verse of Scripture, that last verse of Scripture, accounting that accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence he received him in a, in a figure. Most translations will say which figuratively he was raised from the dead. In other words, him coming back down from the mountain is, the, uh, is, the sim is symbolically him ra being raised from the dead. But if you look at the original language, and we know it was faith that Abraham's operating under, if you look at the original language, you see that Abraham had already received that as done. In other words, faith, which looks at the unseen, not at the seen, has already seen that from within, within his imagination, within his spirit. He's already seen Abraham, uh, uh, Isaac. He's already seen Isaac being raised from the dead if that's what's necessary for God to fulfill his plan and purpose. So Abraham not only is willing to offer his son, he sees his son resurrected. Can you see that? That's what changes everything. That's where God says, now because you haven't withheld yours, I will indeed do everything that I said I would do unto you. I will multiply your seed as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now what does that mean? Possessing the gate of your enemies means you will be in control. You will have authority over, the, over your enemies' territory. Possessing the gate of your enemies has a literal application, and that is you take control of his city. Well, the city represents his stronghold. It represents his territory. So it's literally God is saying, here's a part of the blessing, here's a part of the covenant that was never part of it before. Your seed shall possess the gate of his enemy. Now what enemy does Abraham have? What enemy is Abraham's seed going to have? There's only one enemy that any of us have, and that's the devil. People may yield to the influence of the devil and rise up against us, and, and it looks like they're the ones that hindering us or being a problem to us here on the earth, but the Bible is real clear that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, we have only one enemy, and that's the enemy called Satan, the devil. Turn with me over to Galatians chapter 3. I'm running out of time on this, so let me finish and hurry up real quick. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now this is Paul writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost after the resurrection, writing to the Gentile church, not the Jews, writing to the Gentiles. Now why has Jesus been made a curse for us so that he could redeem us? What did he redeem us from? He redeemed us from the curse of the law. What was the purpose of him redeeming us from the curse of the law? Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Now what do we know that the blessing of Abraham was? The blessing of Abraham was material things, physical blessings. The blessing of Abraham was financial. God made him very rich in silver and cattle and gold. 
Now, you and I don't need cattle because we don't have anywhere to put them. But Abraham was in the cattle business. So it represents business. It represent, for you, it may represent clients. God will make you rich in silver and clients and gold. It may represent customers. God will make you rich in silver and customers and gold. For me, it's people to minister to. So whatever it is that is your business, that's what cattle represents. God will bless your business. We know that the blessing of Abraham was physical. We have no record of Abraham dealing with sickness throughout the years of his life. And in Genesis chapter 20, it tells us that, God, that Abraham prayed. And as a result of Abraham's prayer, God healed Abimelech and his wives so that they could have children. So we see that a blessing of Abraham, a blessing of God, uh, God's presence, God's uh, promise upon Abraham was authority over sickness and disease. I have no doubt that Abraham walked in divine health during the days of his life. We certainly see God changing the physical nature of his body when he was 100 years old so he could have the son Isaac, the son of promise. What else was about Abraham? Well, we see that Abraham's blessing was his seed. There's a blessing of Abraham, a natural physical blessing of Abraham, where your children are concerned. Now, for Abraham, we just read, and we saw it twice, we've read in Scripture how that Abraham received his son raised from the dead. There may be things that God needs to raise your children from the dead, areas of dead things where God needs to raise your children up from. That's part of the blessing of Abraham. Are you out there? That's part of the blessing. But now notice verse 14 again, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. Notice there's another blessing attached, one that God never said to Abraham that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You can never find anywhere in Abraham's blessing or God's conversation with Abraham about spiritual things, spiritual blessings, spiritual truths, except that in Galatians it says in verse 8, back up with me to verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham. Saying, in thee shall all the nations be blessed. What did God explain to Abraham about the blessing to all nations that he's given him? He tells him about Jesus. He preached the gospel. What is the gospel other than the good news of Jesus? What is the gospel other than the good news of Jesus and his sacrifice? Now this is the part I personally believe happened after Isaac was offered on the altar. I believe that God said, since you haven't withheld your son from me, now let me tell you how it's going to go for you. I believe that was the point in time. Could be wrong. I can't find a better time in Abraham's life where it would have happened, though. I believe that was the point where God preached the gospel. His intent, the plan of redemption, concerning Jesus. Back to verse 14 that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 15, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now the problem that the Galatians were in, uh, involved in was that people had come back after Paul had preached faith in Jesus and told them that they needed to keep the law too. Jewish believers had tried to change their belief system, belief system of the Gentiles. Well, yeah, Jesus is good, but you've got to keep the law of Moses too. Paul is combating that. He's coming back and saying, nobody can add the law 
to what God, the covenant God made with Abraham before the law was ever in place. Now to Abraham and his seed, verse 16, that to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. Now do you remember what we read in Galatians chapter 22, verse 17? Multiplying in multiplying, I will multiply thee and make your seed as the sands of the shore and the, as the stars of the sky, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. What seed is being talked about? Is he talking about the descendants, the natural descendants of Abraham? No, nope. he's saying this is what Jesus will do. This is what Jesus will do. Now, folks, with that in mind, can you understand what Jesus is trying to get across to the disciples when he's saying on the last night that he's with them, Behold, I go to the Father? Jesus knows what's coming. He knows the price he's going to have to pay. He knows the sacrifice that will have to be made. He knows the wrath of God that will be poured out upon him because he represents all of mankind and all of mankind's sin. But he also knows, remember the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. What joy is that? To possess the seed of his, the gates of his enemies. To possess the gates of his enemies. To take back the devil's territory that the devil took from Adam which was authority here on the earth so when the Bible says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death it really means it it means you're no longer under the authority of sin and death one place it says Paul writing to Timothy said Jesus abolished death that doesn't mean it doesn't exist it means it doesn't exist for you Verse 17, And this I say, that the covenant which was confirmed before of God in Christ. The literal translation and Young's literal translation both read this way. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before, the covenant that we just read in verse in chapter 15 of Genesis, the covenant that was confirmed before by God to Christ, showing that the two parties of the covenant were God and Jesus. The law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? The law for us doesn't represent the law of Moses. I'm not really tempted to go back and keep the sacrifice. Are you? See, the law represents physical action as a way to God. There's nothing you do physically that makes your way into God. Why? Because Jesus already opened that door. You're already in his name. Wherefore then serveth the law? Verse 19. It was added because of transgressions. For how long? Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Who was the seed that the promise was made? Jesus. So the law ends when Jesus comes. And it was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. Who's the mediator? Moses. But it's done away with when Jesus comes. Skip with me over in verse 26. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as, as have been baptized into Christ, in other words, into the name of Jesus, have put on Christ. As many of you as have been baptized into the name of Christ are in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus is the position that we assume when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives. It's not some special place of faith, some special event where power is exercised. It's the power of God that is, act, that is accessible 
constantly because of being joined to the Father. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know what that's saying? It's saying if you're in the name of Jesus, if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, you are in the name of Jesus. You have a right to the covenant just like Jesus did to whom it was made. Why was it made to Jesus? Because he was Abraham's representative. What does that mean? That means the devil cannot take you away from any of the blessings that were enumerated as the rewards to Abraham. Financial, physical, family. Nor can he rob you from your place with God because you're in the name of Jesus. Folks, if we come to understand that, what we think is impossible will be commonplace. If we quit looking for some special power, some special portal in the sky to open up so that the power of God floods down like a beam of light and realize that the light lives in us, then laying hands on the sick will be an easy thing. We won't have, feel the need to have to draw a crowd to lay hands on the sick just in case something happens. Exercising authority over the devil. You remember in Luke chapter 10, this is confirmed by what Jesus said. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, after the disciples come back and they said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. Jesus said, Luke 10, 19, Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Unlimited power, unlimited protection. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. But then he goes further and he says, But don't rejoice because the devils are subject to us, to you. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In other words, don't get happy because of your authority over the devil. Get happy about your place with God because of me. Get happy because of what salvation really means. It means you're joined with God. Oh yeah, by the way, you've got authority over all the devil, but that's nothing. But we've built the devil up as such the, the, the boogeyman that we think, oh man, even a little bit of authority over the devil. Wow. Jesus said, oh yeah, well you have that too. But the real deal is to rejoice because of your position in me. That's why Jesus said, whatsoever y'all call for or require in my name, whatever you speak in my name, I'll do it. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall speak in my name. Whatever you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. I'm of the opinion, and it's my belief in this is growing stronger and stronger, that we need to concentrate on the, the bearing fruit part more than any other thing. If we focus on the bearing fruit part, which comes by the use of his name, then it causes us to know two things. It causes us to know, number one, who we are in him. And there is nothing more important, in my opinion, than we need to know than who we are in him. The rest of it takes care of itself. Secondly, and this is secondarily, it causes us to realize there is nothing the devil can do to take us out of the hand of God. That means we don't have to be upset or a Twitter because some attack has come. Well, he's attacked my finances. Well, what of it? Whatever we call for in the name of Jesus, he'll do. If we need more money, call for it. Whatever we speak, 
in the name of Jesus. We'll do it. He'll do it. Yeah, but I'm being attacked with sickness. Well, what of it? Whatever we speak in the name of Jesus, he'll do it. I speak healing and health. That's when we get to the place that Paul grew to, where he said, I know how to live when there's plenty and when there's nothing. I know what it's like to live in great circumstances. I know what it's like to live when it looks like everything's against you. Well, what did you know, Paul? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Happy, unhappy circumstance, doesn't matter. I'm the same way in Jesus. Whether things look good or things look bad, I'm just as much in Jesus, either way. Which means I have just as much access to that wonderful name, the power that's broken the power of death, and him who had the power of death. That same spiritual law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, has set me free from the law of sin and death. That doesn't mean to set you free just when things feel good. It means you've been set free whether things feel good or feel bad. Whether things look good or whether things look bad. You can be the same. Never moves. Fully established, fully persuaded. That's our place in Him. That's our place in His name. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, open our eyes to the truth of these things. Show us that the impossible just is impossible to the unrenewed mind. Show us that there is unlimited potential to be tapped into in the wonderful name of Jesus. That wonderful name that identifies our place in Him, our place with You. Father, we thank You that because the Word is true, we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We thank You, Father, that because the Word is true, the blessing of Abraham is ours, the potential blessing of Abraham is ours. That means You make us rich in silver and business and gold. We thank You, Father, that everything we put our hand to prospers. Satan, we serve notice on You. We see from the Word of God that You have no authority in our lives. We command you to take your hands off of our finances. We command you to take your hands off of our bodies. We declare that the life of God is flowing in our bloodstream, in our veins, bringing restoring and healing and health to every cell of our body and every fiber of our being. Thank you, Father, that your word is true. Thank you for that that we speak in the name of Jesus is done. Oh, Father, it's such a wonderful thing to know that we're in Christ. Such a wonderful thing to know that you hear and answer our prayer. Such a wonderful thing to know that we can exercise authority according to your will and your word. And know that it will always be done. Our words carry power because we speak your words. We love you, Father. We rejoice in you. Show us how we can operate and live and walk in the authority that we have in the name of Jesus more fully than we ever have before. For it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen.